Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. Hey, everybody. Welcome to a special episode of That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. This month marks the 50th anniversary of Title IX, and the next few pods are going to touch on different aspects of the law, from its incredible impact on girls and women in sports to continued issues with compliance and more. But first, for those who might need a little refresher on what Title IX is, here you go. What is Title IX? At first mention, many people think Title IX is about equity for women and girl athletes at federally funded schools. That's true, but there's more to this monumental piece of civil rights legislation. Let's begin with the entire name of the law, Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972. It's 37 words, change the game. No person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to, discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. So as you see, it covers a lot. Absolutely athletics, but also bans discrimination against. LGBTQ plus students, students who are pregnant or parenting, and students who experience sexual harassment or violence. The law also applies to admissions, recruitment, financial aid, and disciplinary action. There have been amendments, so Title IX looks a little different than it did in 1972. But at its heart, it remains the same. Gender discrimination in federally funded education is against the law. And this year, Title IX is 50. Careful of those stones you're throwing That's what keeps me going, going I, I keep on turning just to diamonds I'll make sure that this rust keeps shining No matter the price I pay So we're going to have a ton of great content across ESPN and ESPNW all month relating to Title IX, including a fantastic four-part documentary that premieres June 21st parts one and two called 37 words and then june 28th parts three and four both times will be eight eastern on espn plus we've got 30 for 30 dream on w studios 50 50 shorts presented by google we've got stories and features across espn and espnu a month-long exhibit at the paley center in new york that you are welcome to go check out that's pretty incredible i was there opening night and then all sorts of content and integrations across abc the disney parks all sorts of stuff and while you heard in that in that recording that Title IX is a law that you know protects genders in different education-related situations, it's most often associated with sports, and the impact there has been remarkable, undeniable. But while it's important to celebrate this as we reach this 50th anniversary, talk about all the doors that were opened, the lives that were changed, the career that I now have because of Title IX, it's also worth looking at how 50 years later, it's still not being enforced as it should. So my three guests are going to discuss different aspects of compliance and participation. First, collegiate issues from the perspective of an AD with Duke's Nina King. 
then from the lens of a sports historian and professor with Victoria Jackson, and finally how Title IX intersects with high school with Honest Games' Joyce Anderson. So let's start with Vice President, Director of Athletics, and Adjunct Professor of Business Administration at Duke, Nina King. She was named the AD for the Blue Devils in September of 21, becoming the sixth female and third woman of color to lead a Power Five department. And we discussed the three prongs by which a school can remain compliant with Title IX, how difficult it can be to meet those requirements, loopholes that are allowed by the Department of Education, and the need for a rehaul of how we track and ensure compliance with Title IX. As we discussed, Duke is part of the 87% of colleges and universities that don't offer athletic opportunities to women proportionate to their enrollment at the school. So I'm very grateful to Nina for her insight and her honesty as they're part of this problem of figuring out the larger issues of compliance. That's what she said. So the background before you got to Duke, Tampa native, Bucks fan, by the way, Notre Dame undergrad, Tulane Law. As you're coming up through the ranks, whether it's as a kid, high school or through college, was athletic director the goal? Not at all. And so my family still kind of wonders, how in the heck did you land in this uh, job? So didn't even play organized sports growing up. Um, I was a dancer. I did ballet, tap, jazz. Um, but when I got to high school, I didn't play organized sports uh, and then got to undergrad and kind of felt like most of campus did play sports. And so I mm -hmm. thought, how am I going to get involved in in this um, and undergrad at Notre Dame where sport was just kind of woven into the fabric of campus life. So I became a student manager while I was there. And that's really how I fell into um, this career path after I graduated, decided that this was a job. Um, the athletic administration was something I wanted to do, not athletic director. That didn't come to a way <laughs> later. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but got into it uh, after law school and, and rose up the ranks. And here we are. <laughs> I love those stories of latecomers to the sporting world because it does feel like uh, us sports people are indoctrinated so young. You rarely <laughs> hear about someone. It's kind of like me wanting to work in sports. It wasn't until after college I was like, oh, wait, women can can do that for a job. Yeah. Um, it, it doesn't happen often. But those us latecomers, we find a way in. Um, yeah. you, were the, you were the director of rules education at Notre Dame. So you went back to your alma mater. Um, that according to the internet, it means that you were responsible for the coordination and education of NCAA and Big East Conference compliance rules as they pertain to athletic department staff, coaches, student athletes, etc. So were you involved in Title IX compliance while there? Is that part of that job? Mm -hmm. No, Title IX wasn't particularly. And by the way, thank you. You just uh, aged me because you mentioned Big East and Notre Dame. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. My bad. My bad. <laughs> no, all good. All good. Uh, no, it was more focusing on NCAA rules, um, the, the giant Division I uh, NCAA rule manual, um, plus every iteration of interpretations on each of those rules that's on a big database on the internet. So that, that sounds like a job for a, a lawyer, lot. for sure. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so uh, tell me one of the challenges that you kind of anticipated before moving on to this athletic director role, especially somewhere like Duke. Mm -hmm. Well, <laughs> you can't really anticipate all of the challenges. <laughs> this college athletics enterprise is so fluid. It feels like, especially now, and just kind of what are we, who are we, what are we doing? Um, but for the past 13 years, um, 13 years prior to me taking on this role, um, I had the great fortune of working very closely with my predecessor, Kevin White, and just kind of as his right-hand person and was involved in so much of the day-to-day -day of running um, the Duke Athletic Department. And so really grateful to him for the opportunity to, to watch um, everything go 
going on. Um, and really he was, he was preparing me to become an athletic director, not necessarily a Duke, but, um, to become an AD. And I didn't know it at the time. Uh, but, but when I realized that I was going to have an opportunity to try for this job, I thought, well, why the heck not? I'm ready. I know how to do it. I've been yeah. watching it. So <laughs> let's go. <laughs> so in the first year of your time on the job there at Duke, um, you, uh, learn that Coach K will be retiring. You have to hire a new football coach. Name, image, and likeness becomes altogether a whole new universe that has to be navigated. What part of the job has maybe been the most challenging, even if it wasn't what you anticipated would be the toughest? All of the above. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, so many challenges, and I, I would say just kind of the college athletics landscape in general is is the big one and and the one that keeps me up at night. But um, you know, the the Duke specific challenges, replacing an iconic legend after 42 years, um, making a change um, in the direction of our football program. Um, you know, all while making sure that we're providing the very best student athlete experience for 700. 150 young men and women who join us here at Duke um, has been a lot, an absolute whirlwind. Oh yeah, and serving as the chair of the Division One uh, NCAA Women's Basketball Committee <laughs> right. for the second year in a row. That's sort of a big uh, last year or so as well. You know, yeah, yeah. Next I mean, coming out of others. <laughs> yep, yep, coming out of that and and um, agreeing to to chair the committee again for this year. Um, so there was a lot. There was a lot of challenges, but I will say. At the end of the day, it's been so rewarding and I've had so much fun, uh, you know, going out to practices and watching our student athletes compete. Um, rec and PE also falls under athletics here. So club sports, intramurals, uh, rec and PE, physical education wow. um, ha has been um, so it, it's been fun and, and rewarding. Um, I was just out in Los Angeles watching uh, our softball team in the, the super regionals. Year five of that program and we're competing in the super regionals. Amazing. Um, just absolutely amazing. So so those are the moments that make uh, all of the challenges certainly worth it. In your bio, I mentioned what a novelty you still are in, in terms of a woman and a woman of color, just the sixth mm -hmm. woman and just the third woman of color to lead a power five department. And one moment uh, you spoke at the SPNW summit alongside Vanderbilt athletic director, Kansas, Candace Lee. And one moment that really stood out to me from that conversation was Candace saying, despite going to Vanderbilt and now working at Vanderbilt and being there for most of her life, she still never feels like she belongs because mm -hmm. of the way she's sometimes treated as a woman of color, where very often people presume that she doesn't work there and that she doesn't mm -hmm. have a position of power. How has the first year been in that, in that sense, in the sense of being a, a woman and a woman of color who has this position, not just anywhere too, at Duke? Yeah, absolutely. So I will say um, I have a great support support system in Candace uh, at Vanderbilt and Carla Williams at Virginia. The three of us are pretty tight. Um, we we text often. We oh, meet to each see other. that text thread. <laughs> to it's, be on that and get the tea. I want it. Yes, it is a good group chat. Uh, <laughs> So thankfully, I, I've got um, those ladies to lean on. And as you mentioned, six women in Power Five. We were seven up until about a month ago when Sandy Barber at Penn State announced her retirement. So um, the six of us holding strong together, um, for sure. Uh, we need each other. I mean, it, to be successful in this business, you need to lean on your network and especially in Candace and Carla, understanding uh, what the three of us are going through as women of color and, and leading um, 
big, successful athletic departments um, has certainly been so helpful to me to have those women. Um, but like you said, I mean, it's we're, we're a rarity, uh, which is horrible. Uh, so, you know, I'm thrilled to be a part of progress. Um, but my God, three female black mm -hmm. ADs in the power of five out of 65. I mean, what are we doing here? Right. So yeah. I think we all understand um, the six of us uh, that, that, you know, we are, we do have a responsibility to continue to pave the way for not just folks to come after us, for women to come after us, but for women to come alongside of us. Um, we need more right. women and, and now. Yeah. yeah. So if something happens that you uh, don't appreciate, don't think is right, do you send a quick text and say, all right, what do I do? Thick skin, call them out, report <laughs> yeah. it. Is it sort yeah. of like, let me see if you guys have been through this already? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. yeah <laughs> uh, so like useful. you said, the, the, the group chat would be eye-opening to many. Right. And it's, I... it's amazing, uh, you know, how, how much um, we are uh, experiencing similarly on, on separate campuses. Yeah. Um, so yeah, <laughs> we need each other. <laughs> so we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of Title IX, and I have been making sure amongst all the celebrations, which are very warranted, um, and all of the conversations about how far we come, we're still recognizing that compliance across high schools and colleges is woeful, even after 50 years, right? Mm -hmm. So how difficult is it for you? And you're a perfect example of this at the school at which you work because it is a, a, an excellent academic institution. So you're balancing that alongside having one of the best men's basketball programs in the country. So there's tons of boosters, coaches, fans, people who are rabid supporters of that program. How, how tough is it to balance that with the requirements and the compliance of Title IX? Yeah, a great question. I mean, it, it, it means that all of us need to, um, all, all of us le leading Duke Athletics need to come at decision making um, with, with an eye on and making gender equity a priority. It's non-negotiable. Um, you know, like you said, boosters and fans and supporters, so many folks are talking about Duke men's basketball. And so it's on us to bring Duke women's basketball along too, um, and to make sure that, that they are in the conversation and at the table. And when we're providing um, experiences and benefits and opportunities for men's basketball, the women are, are recipients of that as well. And so if you've got boosters donating to the men's program, fine. I mean, they direct where they want their dollars to go, but then it's on the institution to make sure that, you know, we're making up the difference with institutional dollars on the women's side so that we can provide an equitable experience for both our males and females. You worked alongside your um, the, the man who you followed for so long mm -hmm. that I would like to think that the transition didn't require a whole ton of cleanup. Yeah. Hopefully your voice was a powerful one before that. But when you did end up taking over, how much did you look at the current state of compliance and the current position that Duke had on, on everything in terms of the three prongs that have to be met for Title IX compliance and all of that and say, okay, there's a couple things that need to get adjusted uh, now that I'm in charge? Yeah, you know, I don't know that it's now that I'm in charge. It's something that we're constantly monitoring, constantly evaluating. And so the benefit of, of kind of being the internal hire, having been here for so long, I've been a part of that process um, for several years. So um, now I just kind of moved one office over and sitting in a different chair, uh, but still working with a, a team of folks um, here in our athletic department and on campus um, that are ensuring, uh, you know, our, our compliance with Title IX and, and making sure we're in a good place. We'll get right back to the interview, but first, you got learn today. The word of the week is based on something that happened this past weekend. I was at my college reunion and my friend Kim's husband had me thinking about two similar words. So her husband, Fetty, is from Italy. 
And in the past, we've had some fun with his attempts to translate or his miscommunications because of the language. And once he described something that was tongue-in-cheek as chicken tongue, if that gives you an example, uh, we still have fun with that one. But anyway, so we're walking from one tent party to another party, and he called out the few folks lagging behind us as straddlers. Not stragglers, but straddlers. <laughs> so I decided I want to take a look at these two words and see if they're in any way related. So let's start with straddler. Straddle from the 1560s, spread the legs wide, probably an alteration of striddle from the mid-15th century, and the transitive sense of place one leg on one side of and the other on the other side of, like a horse maybe, came around in the 1670s. And then in the 1830s, the U.S. figurative sense of taking up an equivocal position or, you know, being on both sides, straddling something, uh, came around. So now straggle, stragglers, early 15th century, to wander from the proper path, stray or rove from one's companions. Perhaps from a Scandinavian source, Etymology Online believes maybe the dialectical Norwegian stragla, to walk laboriously, or the Middle English strakken, to move or go. So not related at all. Straggle and straddle, just those two little letters in the middle, and they're not related at all. So I guess in a sentence, both of them. Fetty soon realized that the stragglers were behind because they were straddlers, torn between going to the dance floor and getting a beer. Now let's get back to the interview. So there's a USA Today investigation uh, done last month, and there's tons of statistics in it, but it found that 87% of colleges and universities are not offering athletic opportunities to women proportionate to their enrollment. So this is the majority of places have not yet met the expectations of of the law. And that includes Duke, 109 female <laughs> spots short of compliance right now. And that can be based on, there are three ways that you can meet Title IX. Pr participation, which is what that refers to. The number of male and female students should be proportionate to the number of male and female athletes in, in the campus. And then mm -hmm. expansion. So prove that you're expanding female mm -hmm. athletics programs to align with female students' interests. So if you fail in the first prong, you could still work towards proportional representation. And then mm -hmm. three is meeting needs and interests. You could prove that you're actively accommodating all of the interests and abilities of the females at the institution. So you've maxed out on the offerings that people would be interested in. That one's very vague because you can just take a survey and be like, everyone seems good. Um, yep. But those are, those are technically the three. And like I said, it's 87% um, are, are falling short. So when yep. you hear that, and, and actually 109 for Duke, uh, there were schools that were 390 mm -hmm. plus female spots short. Um, and there were, there were some that were just a couple uh, sure. single digits. Uh, what's the school doing or how do you react to hearing that that you're not up to that proportionality yeah yeah well it's not something that i didn't know so that's good right, <laughs> right? Um, no stress I, here sorry breaking yeah. news <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um you know it, it is uh something that that we are constantly looking at and i i will say i'm not making an excuse but covid also threw a wrench in it right. you know everybody's got extra years of eligibility and and which student athletes kind of took you up on it and and which um, ended up not staying so we are a little bit out of whack due to that um, um, but I'm absolutely, I'm so happy to say that we added softball five years ago and that nice. added opportunities for women at a yeah. time where a lot of schools were, were cutting sports and we, you know, wanted to add a, a female sport because it's the right thing to do to continue to create opportunities for women, not disadvantage the men and, and continue to, to cut their opportunities. Um, we also increased uh, the amount of finan financial aid we gave on the women's side. So all of our women's sports um, are at full 
full complement of scholarships up to uh, NCA maximums, allowable maximums for financial aid. Um, and so we phased that in over over a period of time. So, uh, you know, I would say we, we are complying at this point with prong two, history and continuing practice of program expansion. Um, but it's something that we, we do continue to look at and, and make sure we're grabbing hold of opportunities where we can. You know, interestingly, you mentioned, I love that you added the softball program because one of the biggest problems is that the additional quote unquote opportunities for female athlete are often created without adding a single new team. So mm -hmm. instead, a school will double and triple count existing athletes. Like if there's one cross country runner, they'll count her as an indoor and outdoor mm -hmm. track member, even if she doesn't compete in those. They'll count male practice players <laughs> for sports like women's basketball and they'll count them as female participants. And both of those are technically permitted by the Department of Education. You yeah. can count male practice players as women when it comes to meeting <laughs> Title IX standards. So in that investigation I mentioned from USA Today, between the 107 FBS schools, more than 3,600 of those quote unquote opportunities were created without a single new team being added, which is wild. I mean, that's classic letter of the law, not spirit of the law behavior. Exactly. How do you react to that as athletic director? Because you are one of the very few at the top there that can engage with other athletic directors about the practices at their universities. And that grosses me out. <laughs> yeah, it, it does. It does. I mean, the, the male practice players are the worst or, or adding, um, you know, a, a bunch of walk-ons to a female sport so that your numbers count at the beginning of the year. And then who the heck knows where, where they went by the end of the year or by the time it's a, a mm -hmm. season um, for, for that sport to compete. So, you know, I, I am not pulling weeds in anyone else's garden. And I, I will say that in terms of Duke, um, I am focused here and, and um, making sure that we are continuing to create the opportunities here. Um, at, at the ACC, you know, we've got great conversations um, around the table, around the AD table, um, talking about Title IX and, and creating the opportunities. And, you know, we were to, to rewind for a minute, we were talking about the six uh, women Power Five ADs, three yeah. of them in the ACC. <laughs> so we've got uh, Virginia Pitt and myself uh, at the AD table. And so I do feel like, you know, it, obviously with more women at the table, more conversations around the issues that affect women are taking place. And I'm so proud to to be a part of that. Um, but, you know, I mean, it is, it, it's holding each other accountable. It's talking about Title IX, it's talking about Title IX compliance um, so that we can ensure change and, and equitable action. Yeah. Um, there's a woman who's general counsel for the National Women's Law Center, uh, Nina Chowdhury, who said the, the best and fastest fix to start with of all the problematic ways of counting and getting to that compliance number is those male practice players, that the Department of Education should stop letting schools use that um, to count as a roster spot. Do you agree with her? Mm -hmm. Yes, I yeah. do. I mean, <laughs> practice players, um, and I don't yeah. know about other schools, but here at Duke, they show up maybe once or twice a week, and they're great. They're beneficial for, right. for our uh, women's basketball team to be able to practice, but are you kidding me? I mean, we're counting them, yeah. um, you know, for purposes of equity, which which absolutely makes no sense to me. Because you're certainly not counting male staff or volunteers or managers or whatever it is for the football team. You're not looking for exactly. added numbers. Exactly. The yeah. football team is usually the, not the problem, but the issue at schools in terms exactly. of numbers, because there's hundred plus athletes on one program that you're yeah. now trying to offset on the women's side. So you would never see someone who aids and helps the football team be considered a number, <laughs> but on the women's side, of course. Um, 
you know, the other thing uh, that makes it really difficult is that the data is not centralized anywhere. So mm -hmm. there's no real location to find out which prong of the three prongs schools claim to be using to comply with. And so I feel like there's got to be a better system right now. Really, the only way to find out a school is not in compliance is if a student files a federal complaint or a lawsuit. So there needs to be someone drawing attention to a problem, and it needs to be egregious enough for someone to file a suit or complain about. But I just said 87% of schools aren't in <laughs> compliance. So like literally yep. everywhere, someone could file and have an argument. But um, the way the system is set up, that's what's required. I, I, there's got to be a better way. One would think, hello, NCAA. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's where the problem lies, isn't it always? Yeah. Um, have you have you had conversations? And is this something that ever comes up? Because you guys, again, have so much on your plates mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. I feel like oftentimes the needs and frankly, laws and rights for women um, just don't rise to the top. Yeah, you know, it it does come up and it, it's certainly um, a conversation amongst several different tables that I'm sitting at and, and we can certainly use um, the resources from the Women's Sports Foundation and National Women's Law Center and, you know, we, we need to be leaning on, on those folks and, and those people in our network to help us um, hold schools accountable, to have the conversations, to ensure that we're moving towards change. And, you know, I mean, how do we get the Department of Education to quit counting male practice players? You know, we need to be having those conversations and, and um, you know, get action to actually happen. Um, but like you said, we are all so busy. Um, there is so much on our plate. But Sarah, this is a non-negotiable priority, ensuring equity for male and female student athletes really I mean, at a baseline, at a minimum, um, this should be, be on our to-do list uh, as leaders and athletic directors. And I mean, I, I kind of um, jokingly said, hello, NCAA, but we, we need some help and, and we need right. some guidance. And what else does this organization exist for? I mean, we are kind of going through an identity crisis right now. So why not at that level? Let's, let's start there to kind of help us all on a, be on an even playing field. You know, Nina, I think about what's going on in the world outside of sport and rights and protections for women that are being challenged right now that we all sort of took for granted for a long mm -hmm. time, um, that they were law and that they had been argued in front of the Supreme Court and decided upon and that the ability for women to make decisions about their own bodies and their own autonomy was sort of set. And we are watching that slowly be attempted to be taken away from us. And I worry the same about Title IX because in recent years under the previous administration, our former president, worked very hard alongside Betsy DeVos to strip some of the protections that Title IX uh, affords to people who suffer sexual har harassment, rape, mm -hmm. assault, having to be in the same classrooms or spaces with their assaulters. And I wonder if it's necessary at this point for us to use this 50th anniversary, not just to celebrate how far we've come, but maybe recognize that enforcement of compliance is not meeting the standard that it needs to, that the system as it currently sits where data isn't centralized, where schools are able to easily do letter of the law and not spirit, um, mm -hmm. or I guess the, whichever that is, yeah. And and mm -hmm. I wonder if I wonder if if maybe we need to have some sort of actual um, policy change that requires yeah. the Department of Education to create a different system for checking. Yeah, yeah, I think you bring up a great point. You know, we, we do want to celebrate w where we've come in 50 years, um, but is it far enough? And have we made enough progress? I would argue no. I mean, we're, we're still kind of um, 
you know, in celebrating, we're saying, okay, great, now let's move on to the next thing. I think we need to call attention on, um, you know, how do we focus on the next 50 plus years um, to ensure that that we're, um, you know, giving female student athletes um, the, the rights that they deserve. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think this is great to, to shed light on it here, but we need we need folks to to um, really put pen to paper, hold folks accountable, hold Department of Education accountable, and and um, let's move forward um, with a better plan for the next 50 years. All right, it's you, it's me, it's Candace, it's ESPNW. It, we're gonna get it. We're gonna get a group together because that's what let's Title IX showed us: a yep. small group of women coming together and doing something that changed the course of, of the next 50 years. Uh, Nina, thank you so much for giving me some time. I know you are incredibly busy and, and, and thank you for your honesty, because I think yep. um, acknowledging that you guys are coming short just as so many yep. are and that the work needs to still be done is, is super important. And I so appreciate you giving me some time. Absolutely. It was so great to be with you and I'll see you at the next summit. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I'm genuinely fired up after that convo and sincerely will be looking into starting a task force or some sort of thing to change the way we do things. You know, talking to Nina, someone who wants her school to be compliant, someone who cares about these things and still they haven't gotten it quite right, just lets me know that the way we're doing things now isn't enough and the compliance that we seek is going to require a lot more transparency. Uh, speaking of changing things, my next guest has been speaking lately about a complete overhaul of the current NCAA system and is particularly invested in Title IX issues. Victoria Jackson, my Lake Forest High School track and field teammate, uh, she went on to become a professional runner. She's now a sports historian and professor, and she's been teaching Title IX as part of her sports and U.S. history classes at ASU every semester for the last decade. She said every semester, students run the numbers with a school that they pick as a case study to try to check on Title IX compliance and show how proving compliance with the law can often actually have the direct opposite impact of creating and expanding opportunities for women to the point that nearly every semester she has a male practice team player in class who learns during the class that he is being counted as a female athlete for Title IX compliance. Don't understand how? We'll get into it. Along with the other ways that schools cooked the books, why Title IX was so important for education and sports, and what a new model for college sports could look like. Here's Victoria. That's what she said. Wouldn't be possible to start the many conversations I'm going to have this month on Title IX without chatting with my friend Victoria Jackson, who's been here before on the podcast, but is here more specifically to talk about the history of Title IX, the incredible advancements and changes that it made to the face of women's sports across high school, college, and professionally, and even in my business when you come to think about it, uh, since participation leads to interest, leads to coverage, leads to acceptance, um, but also how we could do better 
And so, Victoria, we'll kind of split this into, yay, 50th anniversary of Title IX, and boo, how have we not figured this out 50 years into it? Um, and you, as a professor of, of sports history and someone who knows deep down all the details uh, way back when, let's go all the way back to 1972. And, uh, you know, a lot of folks will be watching the content on ESPNW, including the great documentaries about this and understanding more about the small group of women that put this together. But let's just let's just get to that moment when it gets passed and all of a sudden schools and athletic departments are looking around and saying, Oh no, we have a lot of work to do to suddenly have any kind of proportionality when it comes to participation. Oh yeah. Well, first of all, thank you, Sarah. It's so cool to be talking with a former teammate about yeah. something that has played such a, a hugely important role in our lives <laughs> and the work that we do too. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, from the get-go, this has been an unbelievably important law for girls and women to gain confidence in their bodies and to say, yes, I also deserve elite competitive sporting opportunities and you should be supporting them. Um, you know, by the early 1970s, we already had pretty robust systems of competitive elite sport for women that were created by mostly physical educators who hustled and without any sort of formal support or resources created these opportunities for their students who wanted to play and wanted to play hard. Um, we had before the 70s, this kind of play day culture of women's intercollegiate athletics, especially at predominantly white institutions, where like sometimes you wouldn't even keep score or, you know, if a school traveled to another school, you'd pick teams and you wouldn't be representing your university. <laughs> you'd be like playing with each other and then drinking lemonade and having cookies after. But for the athletes who really wanted to play competitive elite sport um, and the educators who wanted to support them, this law was massively important because now they could go to administrators at their universities and say, we deserve what the men have. We see what they have. We see how much money you're pouring into them. And we deserve the equal opportunity to feel like we're legitimate athletes, too, and get the resources for that. Yeah. And it did feel like um, Title IX was uh, extremely useful to women, not only in the sense that it then required and offered up the opportunity for these teams to be created uh, that allowed them to compete more seriously, but also, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't it, didn't it mean that schools just started offering a lot more opportunity to girls and education because they had to even up? I mean, it's not a sports law. It's an education law. And you suddenly, if you're going to have um, women on campus and, and you have to start trying to even out the numbers of, of people who are attending as well. Yeah, thank you for that big step back and reminder that this is an educational civil rights law. So, so this is about girls and women and educational opportunities. And, you know, oftentimes we hear kind of quotas being mentioned in the context of Title IX that you have to have X amount of women athletes. First of all, that's not true. But also Title IX got rid of the use of quotas in admissions for things like professional schools and STEM fields and undergraduate admissions at elite universities. So like you could have a law school where an incoming class of 200 had like 10 seats reserved for women. Title IX got rid of that. So this, this law was revolutionary in education, firstly, and school sports secondarily. The reason we've come to associate Title IX with sports is because the most egregious <laughs> spending disparities <laughs> were in intercollegiate athletics. And, um, you know, although the universities themselves and, and members of Congress who are debating this on the floor of the Senate 
we're not thinking about sports. Um, the people who are working in the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare who are tasked with putting law into practice and writing up those regulations for helping schools figure out you know, how to comply, also how to do this, they immediately understood that sports was going to be a part of this. And that's why we have things like the laundry list, um, you know, what I call the qualitative experience of equal opportunity, things like locker rooms, facilities, access to coaching, academic support, medical care, um, tr uh, travel and promotions and publicity. All of these things are listed out in the draft regulations in 1974. So immediately, um, the government at least understood that they were going to have to put in the most work to force schools to, you know, think about what compliance will look like and then build out what equal opportunity actually will be in a sporting space. I think also, and I, I don't think I'm saying this merely because it's the spaces in which I operate, but the sports spaces are the ones where it is still the most okay to blatantly argue that men are deserving in spots that women are not, right? You could say it about STEM and science and math and music and anywhere else in education, but you're going to get a lot more blowback for saying it anywhere but sports where people will still openly and vehemently argue that there is more value to a man playing football, even in a non-revenue school who will never go on to play pro than a woman who is playing for equally no revenue and equally no you know, potential pro chances after just because it means more to be a boy who plays sports. And that feels like that's part of the through line as to why compliance at the sport level has been so difficult even 50 years after. Oh, I mean, Sarah, you you hit the nail on the head there. These athletic departments were all male and nearly all white spaces for about 75 years before women and black football and basketball players showed up. That's hugely important in setting the tone and context for what intercollegiate athletics had looked like and the culture that was created in this space. The other really important piece to this is that the United States is unique in the world for uh, all sorts of reasons. And my you know, historian colleagues often get really grumpy and grumbly when we talk about American exceptionalism to, to show all the different ways in which- For good US reason, is, right. <laughs> right, right. But in a sporting context, Absolutely, <laughs> we can be talking about American exceptionalism. You know, the world plays soccer and our soccer evolved on college campuses into American football. And then a big business grew up around that. But we, you know, in that early moment, the world still clung to ideas of kind of morality and purity and class um, identity bound up in amateurism. You know, and then meanwhile are running this ruthlessly like a business. And when the world abandons amateurism, we kind of end up conflating amateurism and education in our college sporting spaces. Meanwhile, we're the only place in the world that plays American football. And so that allows us to kind of exist in a vacuum to pretend this is exceptional and unique, um, to say amateurism is this, you know, glorious thing. Um, meanwhile, it's devolved into a multi-billion dollar industry. And then we also have this kind of elite sport development through schools that grows and develops in the United States, which is also unique in the world. And then we have this educational civil rights law, which school sports become part of because, you know, we should have school sports as part of um, our, our educational civil rights in this space. So the equal opportunity to participate in school sports is the way I talk about Title IX. But in the context of, you know, an American college football system that's 
claims to be amateur so that you know schools don't have to pay football players and then growing that into a multi-billion dollar industry i mean that's the context in which title nine exists and i think one thing we have to be really careful with in this 50th anniversary year is not talking about women's college sports in a vacuum especially considering all the kind of massive changes and, and honestly existential crisis taking place in american college football and the ncaa more broadly Whew, I just went off. Sorry. No, no, no. I, that's <laughs> totally right. And I think this is something I've been thinking about in, at the ESPNW Summit when I'm speaking to colleagues about the context around which we're going to talk about Title IX and the celebrations we're having for the 50th is, of course, we're celebrating the importance of it, the massive changes to participation, acceptance, inclusion for female athletes across every single level through the pros, through the leagues. I mean, the reason that you and I were able to compete collegiately and we've gone on to have careers in sport is because of Title IX. We owe our lives to it. At the same time, it has been flawed in terms of compliance for its entire history. And so even 50 years later, we still look at how the people who are pro Title IX, who are working to actually have it exist outside of just the, the letters on a page, are sometimes working against the very schools that are meant to comply with it. And you would think that the NCAA, as the provider of the championships for sports, would be in alliance with the sports that it works technically for. But instead, it fights against the women's basketball championship and loses money on something that is estimated to be 60 plus million dollar revenue getter every year. It works against college softball, which is the fastest growing and biggest revenue growing sport in all of college below behind only um, men's basketball and men's football in terms of total revenue. And you see these stories, you see these conversations about a lack of equity and you think, how is the NCAA fit into Title IX? Are they beholden to it? Are they, when we talk about inequities from the men's tournament to the women's, is that a violation of Title IX? And a reading a story that you wrote about that, I was shocked to learn, I knew that it that they were not uh, beholden to Title IX, but I was shocked to learn the reason why and the loopholes they jumped through to make sure that they did not have to give equitable treatment. Uh-huh. <laughs> Can you talk yeah. about that? NCAA yeah. versus Smith. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, sorry. Um, no, you're just, you know this so well, Sarah, and it's, I'm just smiling while you're talking. <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, first of all, the NCAA immediately, um, on behalf of its member institutions, um, is fighting, litigating, and lobbying to try to create an exemption for athletics after Title IX has passed. So mm. for nearly the first decade... <laughs> of this law, um, you know, the, the greatest institutional opposition to um, equal opportunity in school sports for women is the NCAA and its member schools. Um, so they, they abandon that and then um, start offering women's championships themselves. So in the meanwhile, and actually before the passage of Title IX, um, we had the Association for Intercollegiate Athletics for Women, which was um, you know, a women-led organization that um, kind of operated in ways similar to the NCAA, but also very distinctively different. And they they really wanted to um, <laughs> emphasize their philosophical differences, um, focusing on sports as an educational program or activity. It's why the AIAW at first 
did not allow schools to award athletic scholarships because that amounted to pay for play and would lead down the road to an, uh, too much of an emphasis on winning and wasn't a, you know, an educational program or activity anymore, which is interesting. Um, but you know, by through the 80s, we also have like a big pause in that the Reagan administration was opposed to all forms of civil rights laws, like unapologetically openly so. And um, that Reagan administration is put in the strange position of having to defend Title IX before the Supreme Court when Grove City College brought a case against the Secret uh, Secretary of Education, Terrell Bell, um, saying we don't have to comply with Title IX because federal monies don't touch our, our campus. Um, and what the, the Supreme Court um, decides in that case is only the office that deals directly with federal funds must comply with the law. And in the case of Grove City College, they had students who had federal loans. And so through the 80s, this was a signal to athletic departments, you don't have to expand opportunities for women in sport. Mm. Um, and it was a signal to athletes don't bother filing a complaint because the federal government doesn't see it as a violation of Title IX and they're surely not going to investigate it. Um, the Civil Rights Restoration Act is what restored Title IX to its broad and an original intent, which was, you know, federal monies touch any part of campus, the whole institution must comply. And, you know, of course, athletic departments don't directly receive federal funds. Um, but that wasn't the intent um, or the original intent of the law. It was a way for the gov federal government to say educational civil rights apply on all schools, campuses in the United States. Um, so by the 90s, that's really when we finally first see a substantial substantive commitment by the schools and even by the NCAA to um, commit to move toward gender equity in college sports. The NCAA has a gender equity task force um, that's commissioned and, and they're putting out really good work in the early 1990s and through the early 2000s. Um, there's kind of a trifecta that needs to be in place for there to be actual progress toward gender equity in college sports. Historically, we see this to be the case for the last 50 years, and that is politically, economically, and culturally. So politically in the 90s, you know, the Clinton administration is very committed to women in sports. Um, Clinton's like partying with the 99ers when they win the World Cup right? Um, in the Rose Bowl, that sort of thing. Economically, um, if there's a recession, no matter what, you are going to see a slowing of progress and expansion of opportunities for women in college sports. And then culturally, we had in the 90s, you know, a, a home soil Olympics in Atlanta, 96, and then right. another home soil World Cup in 99. So that's that's the three things you need. Now, this was a really roundabout long way of me getting <laughs> to NCAA versus Smith. But uh, an athlete who had played volleyball at, at St. Bonaventure, um, she uh, said the NCAA was in violation of Title IX and filed a lawsuit um, because there, I mean, this is the nature of Supreme Court cases that they get really technical and quirky. But in this case, um, she was arguing that the NCAA was violating Title IX because they were issuing gender disparate awards of um, exemptions for a rule that is no longer in place, but had been in place at the time, that you could not compete at a different university as a graduate student okay. um, than the one you competed in as an undergrad. And if you wanted to go to a different school for graduate school and you want, you still had eligibility remaining and you wanted to play sports at that second university, 
you um, had to get an exemption from the NCAA. And this athlete, Renee Smith, argued that the NCAA awarded a disproportionate number of these exemptions to, to men than to mm -hmm. women. Um, and so what the Supreme Court did was say, well, actually, Title IX um, does not apply. Um, the NCAA need not comply with Title IX because the NCAA does not receive federal monies. And the federal monies that touch college campuses, the dues that colleges pay to the NCAA, um, that is too weak a link to the original source of those federal mm. funds. So it's a very technical ruling. And I think in a disingenuous way, the NCAA took this and kind of ran with it. Oh, we don't have to really have gender equity as a guiding principle anymore. And so we're going to have an org chart where the head of women's basketball is not on the same line as the head of men's basketball. She reports to the head of men's basketball. Right. And culturally, that's the through line in intercollegiate athletics. Intercollegiate athletics for women at PWIs existed in women's PE before the passage of Title IX. To simplify compliance with Title IX, universities moved women's programs into the formal athletic department. It's why we have the position of senior woman administrator today. It places women in, in a permanent subordinate role to men because this had been a male space for 75 years and now you get, okay, you'll have one woman administrator and mm -hmm. you know, you'll be surrounded by 20 others, but there's one of you and you should be grateful for that. So it creates a culture in which women are in a permanent subordinate role and they should be grateful for the opportunity to be in that subordinate position. Sounds like total compliance with Title IX, where it is equality. <laughs> yeah, totally makes You mentioned 75 years, by the way. I did not know that until I was reading your story that the NCAA started holding championships for women's sports in 81, which is 75 years after first staging men's championships. So it took 75 years for that to happen. And the court case that you mentioned um, shockingly, the opinion, unanimous opinion, was delivered by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So in that unanimous 99 opinion by Justice Ginsburg, the court said that while NCAA member schools receive federal funding directly, and so they must comply with Title IX, the association's receipt of dues from those schools doesn't make it subject to the same law. So they kind of gave them a loophole. This is the same organization, the NCAA, that so often argues against payment of players and changing their structure because they're student athletes and amateurs and education is the number one. But when given the opportunity to shirk the responsibilities of Title IX, they were more than happy to argue that they weren't truly beholden to educational uh, rules that everybody else was. It's pretty wild. Yeah, the NCAA has gotten away with having it both ways pretty much for the entirety of its existence until that Alston opinion dropped a year ago in June, 2021. Um, you know, what I mean by getting away with having it both ways is, you know, when it's convenient <laughs> arguing that this is educational and in service of athletes, and when it's convenient to not have to do that, running it like a business or not complying with Title IX, and all the things that an educational institution would be doing. Um, and yeah, I think that that tension at the heart of big time college sports, um, the NCAA has managed to get away with kind of balancing that tension and, and kind of all the complexities and contradictions bound up in that. Um, we're at a point right now where that may not be the case much longer. So I would say to NCAA leadership, 
your opportunity here is to develop hard guiding principles if you want to stick around into the future. Um, if we're looking globally at the way sports have been moving, um, gender equity is a principle that nearly all sports organizations around the world have committed to. And the Deloitte Sports Business Outlook for the last few years has named the number one place of growth in the sporting space globally is women's sports. So they're choosing not to follow the business trends um, of what sporting good, healthy, well-run sporting organizations are doing globally, um, kind of in this this last gasp of a commitment to not paying football players, honestly, is, is all it really boils down to. Football team gets in the way a lot because of the numbers there and because of the money and also because they're owned by the Power Five, right? So how do you see the NCAA continuing to try to navigate a world where the investigation into the women's basketball tournament revealed incredible inequities and frankly, that the misogyny was so baked in and so powerful that they were costing themselves millions and millions of dollars in revenue or the increasing outcry from the softball world about the opportunities afforded to men's players in the men's world series versus the softball world series. Um, how do you see the NCAA navigating that, you know, particularly um, as football seems to be consistently changing and evolving um, much quicker and more rapidly than we had ever seen in its history? Yeah, it, it's a really interesting question. And, you know, the, the schools and the Power Five conferences, as you said, own football now. Um, that we may see a, an entire breaking away of that in the near future. Um, but in, in the interim, I think the, the kind of optimal way to think about redesign, because, of course, we have this constitutional convention rewrite of the NCAA happening right now, too, is to think more in a sport by sport manner. Um, this enables these institutions to think more carefully and intentionally around gender equity. Um, it makes them get back to the mission of serving their students when it's in a sport by sport manner. It's almost as if the other sports are coming out from under the shadow of football. Um, and I, I should say like what should be happening in football too is like media rights <laughs> revenue sharing with those football athletes who've been supporting all the other sports with their performances for so long. We need kind of an untethering and a detachment of that kind of financial relationship too. And then I think um, national governing bodies, if, if we're thinking about redesign in a sport-by-sport -sport manner, the leaders of those NGBs are ready to step in and, and think about what development through their sports looks like, um, what expanding participation looks like, what creating more educational opportunities looks like, what championships can look like. Um, that is a feature I would like to see. And, and you know, placing this in the context of Olympic development, too, is important. We kind of have Olympic development by accident in the United States. It's kind mm -hmm. of run through American colleges. We could get more intentional around what that looks like. You know, we're one of the few places in the world that doesn't have public funding of Olympic development. Um, I've I've suggested like a tax on sports betting. You know, if you have a new revenue stream that people wouldn't necessarily be all that opposed to since it's a new thing like sports betting. That is something we could implement. But um, thinking about the funding of these sports programs, how they serve members of a school community, getting back to that original mission of serving students who play sports, um, 
if we can get back to those core fundamental principles in what this future college sports system looks like, I feel very good about the future. Yeah, let's talk future, because as a sports historian, uh, understanding everything that led us to now is a great uh, help in trying to guess at what might come next. So the spotlight on college compliance, equality, opportunity, the potential for a massive amount of lawsuits as people across the country are reminded or maybe learn for the first time about Title IX and all that it encompasses could mean a rapid turnover in terms of the way we're doing things now and getting closer to the intentions of the law and maybe extensions of Title IX, places that aren't fully covered by it, like the NCAA, who because of public pressure then have to somewhat adhere to uh, the same equality standards or at least attempts at equality that other outlets do too. What do you see coming down the pike because of maybe that that spotlight that's going to happen this month? Yeah, I think the reporting out of USA Today has been massively important to to drill down and run all the numbers to get a a real sense of the numbers games that colleges play when they report to the um, EADA database and to the Office for Civil Rights and the Department of Education. Um, This was another phenomenon of that kind of 90s decade moment when we had lots of things line up to really commit to expanding opportunities for women and also to have more transparency around the effort schools were making to expand those opportunities and to have um, more robust participation opportunities. An unintended consequence of the EADA, the Equity and Athletics Disclosure Act and the database that that creates is that um, colleges started learning from each other the games that they could play to artificially inflate participation numbers. And Mm -hmm. this, This is, I mean, playing numbers games is working in the direct opposite direction of expanding opportunities for women in sport in some cases. So like counting men who practice with women's teams as women, um, double or triple counting athletes, um, like distance runners, for example, like me using your outdoor track and field roster to count as your cross country roster. So you have like you know, triple jumpers and pole vaulters and shot putters as cross-country athletes, inflating that roster count at the beginning of the season so that you have like over a hundred rowers. But if you look at the actual roster on the website, there might be only like 47, something like that. And it incentivized, ironically, um, this reporting system incentivized schools to actually play these numbers games. They were told in the directions for reporting, like to have a duplicate count number separate from the actual humans who were playing sports and to have um, count male practice players as women players on a basketball team. So we had some teams who had more men than women playing women's mm-hmm. college basketball, for example. I mean, that's unfortunate. Um and it's really hard as, you know, someone who's committed to, you know, that philosophy of expanding opportunities for women to kind of fight all the systems and structures around her to advocate for more opportunities for athletes. Those women in the 70s who could point to this law and say, I demand more resources now and the law says my athletes deserve them. Um the through line for the advocates for women's college sporting opportunities, um, the through line has been foot dragging and resistance and an exhaust, like an, an unexhaustive commitment to continuing the work to make sure those women get to play. And I think, 
you know, a woman playing college sports in the year 2022 might not know the history of all that work that got <laughs> the experiences that she's enjoying today. Um, what we've seen in women's soccer in the United States, every generation of that U.S. women's national team understanding my responsibility and my obligation here is to take the baton from the last group and advance this a little bit further towards getting what we deserve and having equity and that resulting in this historic CBA. Um, the work behind this, that it's sad that we have to say we have to keep working to get to where we want to be and then protect what we have. But that's the through line in women's sports, not just in the United States, but around the world. And if we needed a reminder of that, we look no further than Roe for something that feels so secure, so solidly decided uh, and, and a part of our law and is now being challenged and be, may very well be overturned. We may see a massive step back when it comes to rights for women's autonomy. And the same could be true for Title IX. In fact, we saw it under the previous administration with Betsy DeVos trying to affect the ways Title IX could be used to protect against sexual assault and harassment on campus. Um, you're right. We have to acknowledge the small group of women that helped push Title IX into passage as a law in the first place, all of the work that has gone in over the last 50 years to help create an actual reality of that law in practice in the lives of girls and women everywhere, and then now fight for some of the practices that have been adopted over the last few decades to cover up for a lack of compliance or to argue against the reality of a need for true equality and proportionality across sports um, because um, it could very easily start to ebb and flow away. And the people who are living now, if they aren't aware of the fight that went into it, may not realize the fight that's going to take uh, to keep it going. But that's why you're so important, because you're going to keep telling us the history of it and the realities of, of uh, what we're facing today. So thank you so much. Always appreciate a chance to get to learn from you. Hey, all of that singing praise at the end there, that all goes right back to you, Sarah. I, I'm so impressed and inspired by the work that you do and appreciative of the platform you've been creating for so many people with so many different causes. So thank you so much for the opportunity. And, Appreciate and, that. Yeah, go Lake Forest High School. Go Lake Forest High School. <laughs> awesome stuff there. And it just reminds me how complicated all of this can be. Um, and Coming up, a fascinating conversation with one of the co-founders of Honest Games. Something else uh, that I had no idea was so complicated was high school compliance with NCAA rules so that students can compete collegiately. I did not realize that this was an issue until she shared with me that 30 to 50 percent of high schools in the 12 states that Honest Games studied didn't have the course approvals for their students to gain NCAA clearance to play college sports. 30 to 50 percent. That means that no students from that school could go on to the NCAA Division I or Division II sports. None. And the worst numbers, by the way, were in the state of Michigan. 58 percent of high schools in Michigan don't have any approved courses or too few approved courses for their students to go on to participate in collegiate sports in the NCAA. I bet you did not know this problem existed either. So here's my fascinating convo with Joyce. That's what she said. So Joyce Anderson and I met at an ESPNW summit, and she said, I want to grab lunch with you and talk about this, this company, Honest Game. And it has to do with compliance for high schoolers and collegiate athletics. And I'm like, okay, like, I don't, I'll, I'll give it a shot. I'll see what this is about. And she blew my mind. She and her business partner 
about the need for this and the issues with compliance for just the average high schooler who might want to go on and play sports in college. So we're going to start there and then we'll get to where that issue intersects with Title IX. But first, let's get to know Joyce. So Joyce, a New Jersey native, child of immigrants, child of divorce, an Asian gal in a mostly white community, short gal who's trying to prove to everybody that you can be on the court, on the field and play along with everybody else. I love how you uh, you describe yourself or your dad described you growing up as a chili pepper. Yeah, totally. He was like, nobody expects you. You know, no one sees you coming, but you got a pretty <laughs> spicy kick. I love that. I love ab- absolutely four foot eleven, and you are uh, you are a ball buster, lady. I I know it firsthand. Um, so give us a little timeline of where you were before you got to Honest Game. Yeah, so I was an attorney. I played college one, um, division one college tennis. Um, sports raised me, right? Like I am who I am today because of my participation in sports, being on a team, feeling confident. Um, became an attorney, switched over to coaching high school girls tennis on the north side of, side of Chicago and started advising in college athletics, eligibility and recruiting. Um, and I sat on the NCAA high school advisory for a couple of years. Um, and I was working with student athletes coaching them on how to improve their grades, how to get set up properly for college athletics um, alongside my co-founder who was running a nonprofit. Um, And she came to me with this printed out manifesto. Um, And we had seen so many kids kind of losing out on scholarships because they weren't being proactive or didn't have the proper information. Um, And we call it her Jerry Maguire moment, right? She had me at hello. It was about (laughs) using data and technology to educate students, their families and school staff. Um, And so we founded Honest Game, a public benefit corp created to bring equal access and opportunity to college by using students' passion for sports to motivate them in the classroom. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing that I I had not heard, that essentially there were some new guidelines and new rules that changed um, for the NCAA and NAIA. And when that happened a number of years ago, a lot of schools were not given the information that they needed to be up to date on what was required of students. So even sometimes students with great academic records that were in no way struggling to keep up were just for whatever reason, not in the right classes or their schools didn't set up a track that was technically, you know, one that spoke correctly to the the needs of when they would arrive in, in college, wouldn't be recognized as college ready. Um, so can you talk about that kind of pivot point where the rules changed and people didn't keep up? Yeah, absolutely. So like the NCAA institutions um, wanted to kind of stop this pattern that was happening of student athletes joining NCAA and then failing out or dropping out because they couldn't keep up academically. And so the the member institutions, the colleges and universities came up with this really kind of complicated matrix of guidelines. And the reason why it's so complicated is because college readiness is complicated, right? It's not like a cookie cutter thing where everyone follow these three rules and you will be college ready. And so they try to, to create a, you know, a, a system of guidelines that measured a lot of different things Um, Because every student is different and every high school is different, right? So your list of high schools that are approved at one school will not be the same as another high school. And so you've got 40,000 plus high schools in the country and everybody's doing it differently. And so they tried to, you know, kind of communicate this out. But the, the people who are really tasked with managing a student's pathway to college are our school counselors, and they can have hundreds of students, sometimes over a thousand students on their caseload. 
and they don't they don't always have the time to keep up with all the changing rules. And with COVID, there have been a bunch of changes, and the NAI just came out with a bunch of a new set of rules. And so, almost a million kids every year are not on track for academic eligibility. They can't take a scholarship. They can't sit on a roster. They can't even practice. Um, and in under-resourced communities, it's almost one in every two students is not on track. Wow. Yeah. And it gets confusing because people are like, how could you possibly graduate from high school and be admitted to a college and still not be eligible to play? And it happens. Yeah. Because the rules are different. Yeah. And what's wild is how often we think of sports as this great pathway for people to be able to compete at the next level while also getting an education, particularly if there's a scholarship in play that will allow them to go somewhere that they otherwise couldn't afford. And the idea that it would be not even in, in some cases, absolutely. It's a matter of needing to get their grades up or needing to be helped in order to get themselves on the right academic pathway to be ready for school. But sometimes it's literally just a matter of their school didn't know that they needed to take X class or achieve X thing in order to make it. And what a heartbreaking thing to learn uh, when you realize you can't compete at the next level. It is heartbreaking. I've worked with thousands of students, one-to-one -one and their families. And over the years and it is it happens every year where you have a student or a family who thinks they're they're good to go they sign their nli or even they're enrolled in college and sitting on campus on the bench freshman year um, and then they mm. find out they're ineligible and part of the issue is that it's a reactive system and so nobody's tracking your academic eligibility until you finally get that offer or or even you know they assume you're good to go because you've got a three eight and you know a good test score and they don't realize that there's a lot of different pieces to the puzzle that have to get filled and college compliance directors are busy and college coaches are tasked with kind of like checking um and it's kind of a pass the buck problem where it's like somebody else is going to figure this out for me but it'll all work out um and it doesn't always you know it doesn't always yeah, like you mentioned, oftentimes it's going to be school staff, school counselors, maybe even parents or others who are trying to, as you as you call it, math it out, where they're trying to look at someone's transcript or scores or classes and figure out whether they comply. Honest Game actually uses a like data computer system to automatically track along with the student throughout their high school career and see the spaces that they might be delinquent, right? Absolutely. So we have developed a software designed for the adults in a student's village and that student, right? So we put in the hands of the adults and the students. It could be coach, counselor, parent, AD, um, and student. And it's a digital platform where your data is not self-reported, so it has to be pulled from the transcript or directly from the school. And it creates this visual guide, right? It's like, um, uh, if you can see it, you can be it. Right. So if you have a visual guide with short term goals and a clear understanding of the five different athletic pathways and how your personal academics fits into it, it allows them to say a student to say, oh, that's what I need to do because they're told constantly you need to do better in school or, you know, take these classes. And they don't really think about their future because they're kids um, and they're thinking about, you know, what's on TikTok and where they got to be for practice and what time they're not thinking about their future always. And if they are, they may not even know, you know, that the English class they're taking isn't going to count for NCAA eligibility. And it's that nuanced. So our tracking system is so easy to access. It's red, yellow, green. It allows kids to see where's your best academic fit. And maybe if you're not eligible for D1 today, 
do X, Y, and Z. Take a summer school class. Which summer school class do you need to do? If you get Bs in this class, your GPA goes up to this. If you get Cs, your GPA goes down to that. So they can kind of measure out in short-term sprints how their performance is going to impact their eligibility. Now, there are countless examples of students that struggle in school. Let's quickly, before we get to them, talk about an example that I think would really shock people. Um, the senior in high school with the 3.8 GPA already going to a D1 college of her choice, who then finds out what? Yep, she had she was half a semester of English short, right? So she didn't find this out until her senior year when her school started using on a scheme as a software. Um, and she was in the spring of her senior year. And she, her family was shocked and they're well-resourced and very well-educated. Um, and she was a great student, honors and AP. You know, you assume honors AP, solid test GPA, but she was short half a semester. Um, and so Honest Game helped her figure out the situation. She had multiple plan A, B, C, just depending on what happened. And eventually everything worked out. And because she knew with enough time to fix it. She was able to get to her college on time with everybody else and not have any hiccups or issues down the road. But a big problem is that, you know, wow. it's like, you know, finding out that late, usually it's too late. Luckily for her, she just had one semester, right? But for other kids, it could be multiple semesters, multiple subject areas. Um, and there's a clock on your eligibility timeline. Um, and you can't shove it all in at the last second. So being proactive is super important. You've had students that uh, were told by college coaches that they weren't sure if they were eligible, but they could send over their report and note that there were college courses that they didn't count, like that were online summer school classes that counted and they were able to prove that they were eligible. You've had people who were able to get the courses that they had taken at the high school level later approved that you could keep a scholarship that they'd already gotten while you know they're in college and looking back and trying to figure out whether they were compliant. Um, a really well-known, we won't use names, but um, Division One athlete at one of the top revenue-producing men's sports that um, needed Honest Game essentially to be able to have that opportunity, right? Yeah, he was an incredibly talented kid, had a lot of struggles in high school emotionally um, with family and friends and was getting big-time offers from every Power 5 school um, for football. And with the help of Honest Games planning and supports, he was able to come up with a plan, right? A proactive strategic plan of what classes he could take after graduating from high school and retaking the ACT. Um, and he was able to get to camp on time um, in July. And actually he might've been a, a couple of weeks late, but he got there um, mm -hmm. and he ended up graduating from college and now he's in the NFL and we're just so, Amazing. he was the inspiration, right? For everything we yeah. do. It was wild for me to hear that um, percentage of schools across the country that will not send a single student to college to play sports because they are not in compliance as a school, including one that you said is just a couple miles from the United Center. Mm -hmm. So they're in the shadow of where the Bulls and Blackhawks play and not a single kid can go. What's, do you have those numbers in front of you? Yeah, so it's it depends on the state. So it could be as high as 45, 50% of schools in 50 percent yeah it's it's depends on the state and it's not it's not because those schools aren't offering college ready coursework it's not it's a housekeeping issue um and those schools just don't realize that their lists are not up to date 
And the problem with that is if you don't keep it up to date, NCAA is not going to give your students the credit that they deserve for the courses they're taking because your courses are college ready courses. But because NCAA recognizes that every high school is different, they don't just blanket approve all the classes for every subject area because it's mm. really nuanced, right? You have to take four years of English and three years of math and two years of science. And just because it's English doesn't mean it's NCAA approved English. And just because it's math doesn't mean it's NCAA approved math. So it's super right. nuanced um, and schools aren't necessarily aware of the problems because they have a lot of problems that they're trying to tackle. So what's fascinating to me is to try to consider the difficulties for a high school female athlete who wants to play a non-revenue driving college sport who will absolutely not have the help and resources to her case as maybe that football player you just talked about. There will always be people who notice a highly talented young male athlete and can think about the ways that they might help him continue on his path. But girls fall through the cracks and I wonder where the Title IX issues of compliance, where we know that high percentages of high schools across the country, the majority of high schools across the country are not in compliance with Title IX. How does that intersect with Honest Games work? Yeah, our work is absolutely focused on equity and access in education, which is the bones of what Title IX is, right? Um, and it is all about ensuring that everyone has the proper information that the village of adults around the student and the student, because in a lot of cases, a student is on their own, right? She's on her own, she's gotta figure out herself. And it's really complicated even for an adult to figure out. Um, and a lot of times students just rely and assume somebody else is managing this for me. And so a student should never assume that, right? Um, and obviously Title IX is really you know, impactful to us, Kim, Michelson, my co-founder, and me. I mean, Kim was the first female in California to play varsity boys baseball and basketball. And there's this amazing LA Times article <laughs> from 1986 um, about her participating in basketball and what the coach thought about it. And I mean, that was 14 years after Title IX was passed, yeah. right? And, and still, there was just, everything works very slowly. Um, and so we believe in the power of sport and what it can do for young people. And we want to ensure that every student has the opportunity to keep playing and get a college education at the same time. And for girls who oftentimes don't declare that they're a college athlete, right? Boys tend to declare that much earlier and tell their counselor, I'm gonna be a college athlete, that's what my goal. A lot of the times it's not necessarily something a girl may speak up about. And so if you don't speak up about it, then there's another barrier, right? Your counselor doesn't know to be tracking your academic eligibility for college sports. Um, and so just allowing kids to see this in a very proactive way, starting freshman year, we start tracking student athletes at high schools um, to ensure that they're tracking every term. They can see those short-term goals every term, and if there's a red flag, they'll see it immediately, and they'll be, you know, they'll they'll be red flagged to take an additional course or replace another course that they took. Um, and it's just like super helpful because we've had a lot of kids say, "Oh, I finally know what I need to do." Or counselors say, oh, you saved me so much time because I never had time to keep tracking. I would just always do it after they signed the NLI or I'd do it, you know, when I was submitting graduation transcripts. And by then, it's really too late for most kids to catch up. And to be fair, those very people might prioritize the cases of boys that they're working on and making sure they're keeping an eye on their compliance while the girls, again, fall through the cracks, uh, intentional or otherwise, yeah. because of the attention that might be 
be given to them on the check-ins from the coaches or parents for those boys to make sure they're still on track. You know, the gap of participation at the high school level has closed a ton since Title IX went into effect in 1972. The numbers right before the pandemic, so 2018, 2019, um, were an all-time peak of 75% girls relative to boys. So girls have never eclipsed the number of boys playing sport in U.S. in high school, but 75% compared to the 100% of, of boys number was was the closest that they got. And part of that is actually the college trickle-down effect. Um, there's so much higher number of participants in the in the game of football, the sport of football, that that's always going to take up a big number of spots at the high school and collegiate level. But also, there's still so many fewer resources put into college athletics. And so a lot of schools, 87% of FBS schools at the collegiate level are not compliant. So all of these girls are pursuing spots where there are fewer opportunities, fewer scholarships, fewer spots, and where the recruiting gets 46% as much money. Head coaching is is paid lower. So there's um, less of a of an in incitement to take those jobs and then to go pursue the best talent around the country. All of that trickles down, Joyce, to how many girls feel like there is a future for them in sports after school. Yeah, absolutely. And there's cultural right reasons why yeah. a lot of girls aren't in sports. And I think like, you know, the work that ESPN and ABC, right, like having the world, the college World Series for softball on network TV is just so impactful because it is so much about like, if you can see it, you can be it, right? Like tennis, when I was growing up, like tennis was only one of the only female pro sports you could see on TV. Um, there just wasn't a lot out there. And, and I was like, I want to, I want to play that looks fun. Right. And I think that like the more and more girls can see the benefits and how being a college athlete can impact your life and your future and how much fun it can be and how it's not about like, um, you know, like when I was a kid, it, people would be like surprised that I could throw the ball yeah. or I could run fast. And I'm like, well, is it because I was short or because I was a girl or yeah. what was it? You know, but like it's this concept of like you shouldn't be surprised anymore. Yeah. Right. That girls can play sports and it should just be a given um, and, you know, there's so many barriers in place already, um, just trying to keep up. But I think that like the more we have access to information, um, the more we'll be able to be a proactive system and, you know, people are being more innovative now and really, you know, joining into technology after COVID schools are revolutionizing their technology and people are more on board with recognizing some of the issues that are in place. Um, but it, it's challenging, right? It's challenging getting resources and information out and helping people understand a problem um, is just really, really difficult, um, especially in academic eligibility, because it's a very kind of like, it, it doesn't become a problem for you until it is a problem. Right, right, right. right. Again, like you said, reactive. It's so reactive yes. instead of proactive. Uh, I'm not surprised to hear that because uh, the, the NCAA, even if its intent was good, which is always doubtful in the way that they put together these new rules, it's not surprising that somehow they managed to muddy up an already complicated system and make it really difficult. Um, is Honest Game partnered with NCAA. Um, how does it work? Is it in every school? How does, um, how does if, if there's a parent or a student or someone listening who says, hey, we might need this in my department or my school or my community, how does, how does that work? Yeah. Um, so we don't partner with the NCAA. They're a very independent organization. Mm -hmm. um, but what we do is we work with, we can work with schools directly. 
So we work with some really large school districts and individual schools. We can also work with organizations, right? Like a travel club team. Um, and actually we also will work with individuals, right? So if you, you know, your school doesn't use us, um, you can just sign up for an account on your own. Um, and it's very cost effective because we are an access tool. So we're trying to make sure that everyone has access to this and can afford it, um, which is why we go to schools directly because we can work with all of the student athletes, not just the kids who think they're playing college sports because you have kids who grow a foot in high school or you know find a newfound love for sport. I had a kid who picked up high jump um, his junior year in high school and now he's going on a division one scholarship, right? Like it can happen. And so in our opinion, it is much more proactive and impactful to work with all of the student athletes at a high school, which is what we really want to be doing. Yeah. I mean, it feels like it's one of those things that's sort of a no brainer. And I was very excited. I'm on the women's advisory board for Gatorade. They have this massive new campaign sending dollars into a bunch of great, great organizations to help keep girls in the game longer and counteract some of those things we talked about, whether it be resources, societal pressures, or otherwise that cause girls to drop out at a, a much higher rate at a certain age than boys do in sports. And I saw the Honest Game logo up there and I was like, all right, look at this, like getting that Gatorade money. Um, So hopefully yeah. that will help you all get your product out because Again, like just shining a light on some of the barriers because I had no idea about any of this. Now I don't have kids, so I'm not worried about their their eligibility, but to hear the stark, um, the numbers that you could have 50% of a high schools in a state just not be able to send anyone and not have anyone be compliant, that you could have these student athletes who this could be a completely life-changing opportunity for them to play at the next level and get a college education. And it's a matter of paperwork, basically, that would yep. be the difference between them getting on the right path or not. Um, it's it's difficult to hear. And I especially, anytime you take an issue that affects everybody, the chances of it more disproportionately affecting females and people of color and marginalized communities goes way up. So, um, yeah. I can only imagine the compliance issues that uh, young female athletes deal with in these situations. So uh, I really appreciate you giving us some insight into this. It's fascinating stuff. And where can people go if they want to like learn more about this? Honestgame.com. Honestgame.com. Very simple. Very simple. Yes. Uh, thanks, Joyce. That's what she said. Oh, yeah. One more thing. This is a place for ranting and raving, telling you what to read, watch, listen to. Uh, first, Get into all the incredible content that I mentioned at the top of the podcast, especially the amazing documentary premiering June 21st and 28th, 37 words on ESPN. Also seek out some of that cross promotional stuff with our networks, our theme parks, all that good stuff I mentioned off the top. Also check out the incredible work done by the Women's Sports Foundation. They released a research report, an executive summary of Title IX after 50 years. And then a big shout out to USA Today for a lot of that research that I got. They uh, really killed it. Tons of articles tackling different aspects of the law and compliance. Really great resource. So get into all that stuff. Make sure you're up to date on it. All right. You can always tweet me at Sarah Spain. If you have guest suggestions, questions, dilemmas, you should always go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe or follow. That's what she said with Sarah Spain. Rate it five stars, please. Give me a nice review. All right. Thanks as always for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. 